justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org According to news reports, a Texas man and woman stole a hearse from a funeral home and later dumped a body in a ditch. Scott, what do you think was going on? This was 100% not my fault. We didn't even know the body was in there until we were miles down the road. And then what were we supposed to do? So you intended to steal the hearse, but not the body? Exactly. Big family reunion coming up and we needed something with enough space to haul all the groceries. Allegedly. <laughs> really, I'm sure I don't know what you're talking about. Hello, boys and girls. This is Scott Henson with another Just Liberty podcast recorded in Austin, Texas, July 21st, 2017, with our good friend Amanda Marzullo, Executive Director of the Texas Defender Service. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? I'm looking forward to talking about the, t the Driver Responsibility Program, which is how you and I first met. Yes, it is. And talking about our wonderful new music for this podcast. This really is amazing new music. Thanks so much to Gabe Rhodes and his all-star crew of musicians he put together for their excellent work. All this original music really makes the podcast hum. Turning to our top story, a local police chief and school board member have resigned after Miss Black Texas 2016, who was a student at Texas A&M Commerce and an intern at the Hunt County District Attorney's Office, ironically was arrested for refusing to apologize after the school board member allegedly called her a black bitch in the Walmart parking lot. You saw the video, Mandy. What's your takeaway from this episode? Uh, sadly, there are, I think there are a few things that you can take away from this. I think the first is you can beat the rap, but you can't beat the ride, right? I think her name is Miss Ponder. Carmen Ponder, Carmen yes. Carmen Ponder. The charges were dropped against her, but she still has an arrest record. From what I understand, for resisting arrest, and then she's still worried about expunging that. Because she wants to go to law school. That's why she's interning at the DA's office. And so, who wouldn't be worried? And yet... She's the only one there who did nothing wrong. She's the only one there who was in control the entire time. You saw the video. She called 911 herself because these two crazy white men were behaving in a totally inappropriate way. It was really quite astonishing and quite saddening that that type of behavior is still going on from elected officials in 2017. And uh, just to put a nasty coda on the end of this story, the police chief made a big show of resigning and made out how he was a victim of the Black Lives Matter movement for pushing him out the door over this. But in reality, he was kicked upstairs and was actually made an assistant city manager over the police department. And so really was given more power, not less. The, really nothing bad happened to that guy. Wow. Um, I, I think one of the other things that you just touched on there, too, that's important to point out is that this incident sort of debunks this idea that if you're approached by law enforcement, that if you behave well, that you can de-escalate de the situation. That's right. It's like the Philando Castile situation where he tells the man he's a concealed carry permit owner, he has a gun, he tells the cop everything he's supposed to do, behaves politely, and he still gets shot. Yeah. Now, there are some episodes where it's very clear that there's no amount of polite behavior that would get you out of it. Yeah, sadly. So moving on, on a related matter, Just Liberty is about to file a petition with the Texas Department of Public Safety requesting that they initiate rulemaking to limit arrests by Texas state troopers for non-jailable offenses. 
Under a little known state law, if 25 Texans sign a petition, DPS must either deny it within 60 days or initiate rulemaking. Just Liberty's petition was signed by representatives from 16 groups as well as several state legislators. So Scott, tell me, what is Just Liberty trying to accomplish? Well, this petition comes on the heels of an effort at the legislature to pass a bill to eliminate most arrests for non-jailable offenses. This all came out of really the Sandra Bland episode when she was arrested at a traffic stop for really failure to signal lane change was the underlying charge when he initially laid hands on her. And that story has really resonated throughout the state. You saw the Sandra Bland Act, you saw a bunch of different bills filed on this topic, and it's really hard to overstate the extent to which her story has altered the terms of debate over criminal justice reform in Texas. Her mother actually is one of the petition signers on this petition to the Department of Public Safety. And so what we're trying to do is convince them to change their internal rules to eliminate most of these arrests unless the, the driver is actually a threat to others and certainly that was not the case with Sandra Bland mm -hmm. and we'll see what happens they have a meeting in August and we'll find out how the Public Safety Commission receives this petition then meanwhile when we came up with this idea at Just Liberty for a petition to DPS on classy misdemeanor arrests it was based on a project that you and I did together Mandy nearly a decade ago we worked together to get the Department of Public Safety to change its rules vis-a-vis -vis the driver responsibility surcharge, which is an extra civil penalty that drivers must pay for three years on top of fines for DWIs and certain traffic tickets. Back then, we proposed rules via a similar citizen's petition to waive most fees for indigent defendants and to force DPS to create an amnesty program, which operated for a few weeks in 2012. What do you remember about that process? Well, I remember it being much harder and longer than I expected it to be. Um, I mean, going to trial has nothing on the administrative rulemaking process is what I learned in Texas. I will say that I, I found that the Public Safety Commission was receptive to the issue, especially when we pointed out that there are individuals in Texas with tens of thousands of dollars being assessed every year. Like, I think there were people who owed as much as $40,000 a year. And point. who were never going to get out from under that debt. Yeah, ever. no, I mean, it's crushing. And it, it, was, it would escalate and compile again and again. And that it was a hard, it was a hard fought battle. Um, I think at one point they, they viewed the amnesty program as being a violation of the ex post facto clause, which was an argument that I found a hard time to even understand, let alone argue against effectively, just because it was so strange. The whole process was very strange. Uh, no one had actually done this petition process at DPS since the 1930s when you and I did it. And so it came out of the blue for them. They didn't really understand what we were doing and sort of resented us for it. They wouldn't even let me in the room for much of the process. And <laughs> amazingly, you, that. you were able to get in. And there was one very strange meeting at a working group where I sat outside on a bench and you would come out during breaks and we would talk and then you'd go back in and negotiate but I wasn't allowed to come in and sit at the table. And the whole thing was bizarre like that. Yeah. I will say at the end, it turned out all of that was really about the general counsel's office. The Public Safety Commission itself was very receptive 
And when the general counsel proposed really a bad set of rules that didn't do what we wanted, the Public Safety Commission slapped them down and said, no, you have to go back, you have to hold a full-blown public hearing, and you need to give us things that address what these advocates are um, talking about. And they ended up doing it, but it was, like you say, a very hard-fought process. It took about a year and a half. I think even more than that. I think it took close to two years, and we had a series of of hearings. It was it was rough. It was quite a thing. Yeah, it was a thing. So moving on, on your blog, Grits for Breakfast, recently you wrote about a now-retired Houston police officer who had a financial incentive to make trumped-up arrests because he made time and a half whenever he was required to go to court, whether or not the charges were dismissed. The situation was so extreme that the Court of Criminal Appeals was asked to determine if a lawyer didn't investigate or raise the issue was guilty of ineffective assistance. But you pointed out on the blog that the incentives are structural and often embedded in labor agreements with police unions. This was an older case out of Houston from 2004. Is it still going on? It is. And in fact, I was amazed to discover as I researched this for that blog post, I looked up the meet and confer agreement for Austin. And Austin's incentives for police officers to go to court are even more lucrative than those described in this Houston case. In Austin, anytime an officer has to go to court after their regular working hours, even if it's just for half an hour, for one hour, they get a minimum of four hours at time and a half, no matter what the amount of time, bare minimum, if they have to go to court before work. Say work starts at 8 a.m. and they have to be at court at 7.15. They get to charge the city a minimum of four hours at time and a half for that extra 45 minutes that they're in court. So they have a huge incentive to get to show up in court. And interestingly, in Austin, we have also had a problem where the department had been encouraging officers to make DWI arrests. This officer was also on the DWI task force. And the officers were making arrests that were getting dismissed at very high rates. And now we understand, I did not when this came up before, that that may be in part because they have this incentive to go to court and make extra money that way. It's really a rather disturbing phenomenon. Hard to imagine how the bean counters allow that to persist. Really is. All right, final one here, the Department of Public Safety. Final top story, we should say. Department of Public Safety for years has provided free crime lab services to any Texas law enforcement agency who wanted them. Most larger agencies had their own labs and many others contracted with private ones, in part because of increasingly long wait times at DPS. But smaller and rural agencies rely on, the, on DPS crime lab services. Now, though, the legislature has directed DPS to begin charging local governments for crime lab services beginning September 1st. So, Mandy, what do you think about this latest legislative budget cutting maneuver? Well, I think it's hard to say at the outset how this is going to shake out. It does seem that it, it should force rural counties to prioritize their cases. Um, ideally, if they don't want to pay for the services to have drugs tested, it probably means that the case isn't worth prosecuting or at the bare minimum, the case should be diverted in some way. That said, I, it is possible that they could be proceeding without the evidence being tested. I hope that the defense bar won't let that happen, but you know, we'll, we'll keep watching this one. I think you've exactly encapsulated sort of the two options here. On one hand, it really does create an untenable situation when the locals can just get forensic services for free 
at whatever levels they want. It's not free to state taxpayers. And taxpayers, for example, here in Austin or in Houston, where we have crime labs that we pay for through local taxes, it's really inappropriate for us to subsidize these rural prosecutions in that way. Yet, at the same time, there is a fear that these agencies don't have a forensics budget right now. If you tell them you have to begin paying, they can't get blood from a stone. And so are they going to push through with cases that result in false convictions because they're just not applying forensics anymore? I think probably both those things are going to happen. It probably isn't an either or. It's probably that there will be good and bad result, and we won't really know in aggregate which way it tips for, for quite a while. All right. Coming up, stay tuned for an interview with Texas House Corrections Committee Chairman James White and a fun new segment called Suspicious Mysteries. But first, let's give our listeners a taste of the amazing work done by Gabe Rhodes and his crew. Here's some music created for our game segment featuring Floyd Domino on piano and John Mills on clarinet. Today we're speaking with Texas House Corrections Committee Chairman James White, who was an Army officer and then a school teacher before he was elected to the Texas Legislature in 2010. Ironically, the Democrat he defeated, Jim McReynolds, was also Corrections Committee Chair. Four terms in, Chairman White has emerged as an important leader among conservative criminal justice reformers. Let's hear what he has to say. All right, Chairman White, I wanted to ask you about criminal justice politics in mm-hmm. America and the Republican Party today mm-hmm. in particular. We're at this strange moment where mm-hmm. every issue, it seems like, is splintered across a vast array of, yeah. of axes, uh-huh. whether it's criminal justice or, or mm-hmm. really any other topic you can think of. It's not just a partisan issue, one party versus the other. Mm-hmm. Within each party, there are enormous differences. Mm-hmm. And on criminal justice, we're in this moment where we have the president talking about American carnage and mm-hmm. the attorney general ramping the drug war back up. Mm. And here in Texas, we have conservative Republicans mm-hmm. taking the opportunity of extremely low crime rates mm-hmm. to close prisons. Mm-hmm. and. This seems like a disconnect viewed from the outside. Mm -hmm. So how should people think about this? How do we make sense of these splits and these different messages coming out on these criminal justice topics? Well, thank you, Scott, for that question. And and thank you for this opportunity to be on the podcast. Uh, I'll go ahead and full disclosure. I'll probably wake up in the morning about 2, 3.30 in the morning and get a cup of coffee and peek at the grits for breakfast and (laughs) listen to some of the podcasts. But look, You know, when you look at our general political scenario, it is very fractured. You have deep divisions within parties. 
on a, on a whole host of issues. Obviously, a lot of divisions on partisan ideal, ideology uh, lines. On this issue of criminal justice, I, I just think it's just basic politics. You know, at the end of the day, politics is local, right? And so in Texas, because of some things that we've done in the past, we can kind of enjoy this, um, I guess you can call it a, a CJ, a criminal justice dividend, uh, by investing in the, um, on the front end. But, but let's also think about this. Uh, often I tell folks back home in the district, the state budget is probably about three things, mostly education, medication, and incarceration. That is public safety. So if you're not doing very well on the education and medication, that's the Medicaid, that's the Health and Human Services, you're going to probably end up with a lot of situations, public safety, and in a broader sense, incarceration. So I'm saying all that is that I think we can take advantage of this criminal justice dividend in the state of Texas because we've had an economy that has grown faster than other parts of the state creating jobs faster than other parts of the state, at least this is what the data tells us, and then people- the country. In the country, yes. Uh, other, other parts of the country, let me, let me say that. You know, so we've had this going on, okay? And so people can transition into, into jobs. I think there is some correlation with economic opportunity and uh, poor public safety outcomes. So I think we've had those kind of perfect storms here in the state of Texas. So I would say in Texas, politics is local. And so we can just do some things in some other parts of the country. May it be, uh, you know, Chicago, uh, Memphis, where you've had just skyrocketing uh, crime rates. Uh, Maybe they just need to look at some other, other strategies. Next up, today we're introducing a new segment on the podcast we're calling Suspicious Mysteries, in which we discuss questions to which there are no definitive answers. Today we examine some new data from our friend Amanda Woog, who recently took a job at the Quattrone Center at Penn. Where all of the finest lawyers are trained. Because that's where you were trained, of course. Well, exactly. Go Quakers. The fighting Quakers. Good Lord, that's just sad. <laughs> what, you don't find some Mennonites to be particularly intimidating? Terrifying. <laughs> Regardless, Woog's numbers showed that after several years of steady increases in the number of people in Texas shot by police and or who died in police custody, 2016 saw a sharp decline. Both Amanda and Brandy Grissom at the Dallas Morning News reported on the sharp rise in deaths in custody in Texas over the last decade. Deaths in custody reported by Texas Police and Sheriff's Departments reached a high of 175 in 2015, then dropped like a stone to 125 last year. That's the lowest total in a while, but it's still much higher than in the past. In 2005, for example, just 84 people died in police custody. So the 2015 max was more than 100% of that total. So Mandy, what do you think caused the increase in police shootings over the last decade and what might account for last year's drop? 
Well, I doubt it's one thing that caused both the increase and the decrease. But looking at the front end of this, I think what is sort of surprising about the rise in deaths in custody is that it corresponds with a drop in crime. A big drop in crime. A huge one. So you would expect that there would actually be less contact between the public and law enforcement. It also corresponded with a big drop in the number of traffic tickets given. Hundreds of thousands fewer traffic stops occurred over the over this period so what you're actually seeing is a rise in sort of the violent interaction rate and in sort of the treatment of individuals once they're in custody so it's it's hard to to suss that out what's going on there it could be problems with training it could be problems i, I mean really just i mean training seems to come to mind as the big one but could and be a, a lack lot of, of discipline different. when officers do engage in misconduct that can set a bad example that then other officers feel like they can engage in similar behaviors there, there's a number of things but like I say I guess that's why this section is suspicious mysteries it's impossible to really know what it is we can guess we can speculate but it's really hard to know what's causing it and then you know with the decrease it could be just noise because we're talking about very small numbers but at the same time, there are a number of things that have been implemented in the past year that would make you think that it could have had an effect on law enforcement behavior. So things like body cameras, the fact that more Texas police officers are wearing them now and having to have them on. Um, I'm sure that a lot of police office, like police agencies have had training. Also, there have been a lot of lawsuits across the state for deaths in custody, which probably triggers, you know, a policy response at the local level. As well as major publicity surrounding shootings by police. And even though we haven't seen too many convictions, we've seen quite a few officers indicted, which didn't used to happen very often. And so it's possible that, like I say, all of these things together are changing sort of the, the culture facing police officers as they make those decisions. But mm -hmm. It's, it's really confusing when you try and pin down, well, what's the cause, one direction or the other. There's, there's really no one thing you can point to in that way. Well, coming up, stay tuned for a new game segment called Home Court Advantage. But first, here's a quick word from Just Liberty. Just Liberty.org, it's good for you and it's good for me. Just Liberty.org, just Liberty.org. Hi, I'm Scott Henson, creator of the blog Rich for Breakfast and policy director at Just Liberty. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to visit JustLiberty.org and sign up to receive notice whenever your voice can make a difference towards state or local criminal justice reforms in Texas. Join us today, and thanks for listening. JustLiberty.org, it's good for you and it's good for me. JustLiberty.org, JustLiberty.org. Today we launch a new game on the podcast we're calling Home Court Advantage. The premise is deceptively simple. We consider recent court cases affecting Texas and discuss who stands to gain an advantage or disadvantage as a result. Let's start this new segment with a case where the state of Texas finds itself at a disadvantage. Inmates at the Wallace Pack Unit, which houses disabled and geriatric prisoners, 
had sued over oven-like conditions during the summertime, which have resulted in numerous documented deaths and likely many undocumented ones over the years. The Fifth Circuit allowed the case to go forward. Now a federal judge has ruled that the state must provide air conditioning for heat-sensitive inmates at the PAC unit, including for the sick, the elderly, people taking certain mental health drugs, and other particular medical conditions. However, the state is not required to provide a seat to able-bodied inmates housed at the unit to perform manual labor. The state has vowed to appeal. So, Mandy, looks like the state is at a disadvantage. How, how deep is the hole they're in? Uh, I think it's the beginnings of a deep hole at this point. The, as you alluded to, the decision is pretty narrow. It's affecting individuals who have been identified essentially as having a condition that makes them sensitive to heat and stating that the government basically needs to accommodate that sensitivity so that they don't die, really, at the end of the day when they're being incarcerated. That said, these categories are broad. I mean, we are talking about people who are sick. There are a number of individuals, I think you somewhere around 7,000 or upwards of 7,000 people who are in custody who are over the age of 65. And TDCJ has a lot of people in custody who are taking psych drugs who may be sensitive to to heat and it, it is advancing the ball towards this idea that in general the government needs to make sure that people who are in prison are safe and in a state that often gets where the temperature often rises above 100 degrees that could almost mean anyone. That's right. A couple of other interesting aspects of this. First, some county governments have responded to this by suggesting that the state should start sending its inmates to county jails where the state has required them to keep their units air conditioned and below 85 degrees for years and years. And that strikes me as kind of an interesting suggestion because it might be better than where they're at. It is the case that in some of these rural areas, you're probably not going to have services. You're not going to have mental health services or any sort of significant counseling or treatment sort of uh, mm -hmm. support and so that might be an issue at the same time we do have a lot of air-conditioned empty beds in this state more than 17,000 so I thought that that was an interesting idea I think you're definitely right that this does only affect an, a narrow group but it's a it's it's a large enough group to where there'd be dozens and dozens of units affected if they actually had to apply this to every unit. So TDCJ really does have a big interest in fighting this financially because if they were required to apply these standards at every single unit, there'd be very few at the end of the day they didn't have to air condition, is, is my guess. I think you're probably right. And going back to the county thing, it would actually allow defendants to be closer, not defendants at this point, I guess they're prisoners, to be closer to their families if they're housed at a county facility. That's exactly right. So that may not be the worst idea. Next up, George Alvarez, a Brownsville man, won a $2 million verdict from a Texas jury after the government framed him for assaulting a jailer in San Antonio. It turned out that Mr. Alvarez was assaulted rather than an assailant of a police officer, but because he faced a steep trial penalty if he took the case to verdict, and because the government concealed exculpatory evidence that proved his innocence, he pled guilty and only challenged the conviction when the hidden evidence became available. The Fifth Circuit threw out the jury award saying his guilty plea invalidated any rights to hold his assailant accountable for inarguable civil rights violations. Scott, who benefits from this ruling and what message does this verdict send going forward? Well, 
who benefits, I suppose, are dirty cops and corrupt prosecutors. I can't think who else would possibly benefit. And even for them, I suppose it only benefits them in the sense that they won't have lawsuits later, but there should be lots of other penalties for people like that too. It's a, But it's a terrible, terrible ruling. The only way you could make this ruling is if you absolutely don't have any sense of why innocent people might plead guilty. Yeah. The reality is 98 plus percent of cases result in guilty pleas and we know innocent people plead guilty all the time. 25 percent of DNA exonerations have been from guilty pleas. So we know that even in some of the most terrible cases people will plead guilty to avoid a death sentence or very very long sentences and in lesser cases we see guilty pleas all the time because someone wants to get out of jail and because maybe if they sat in jail two months later they could prove their innocence but they want out right now. So the only way you make this ruling is if you just have no understanding at all of any of those issues. And it's very disheartening that the Fifth Circuit has that mindset. Yeah. So the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals will finally allow cameras in the courtroom for oral arguments thanks to legislation passed this session. Mandy, who stands to gain here? I think all parties and the Court of Criminal Appeals stands to gain here. I am always in favor of making the courts more accessible, and that's what we're going to be seeing with this. And I think, like, not just litigants, I think that you'll see a lot of people going back and looking at oral arguments and the recordings as they're archived on the court's website. And it, it might actually help with the dialogue that we see between the Court of Criminal Appeals and the legislature on certain procedural grounds. Like, over the past several years we've seen a lot of conversations about post-conviction remedies for example like we've seen chapter 64 amended I, I don't know how many times now that's right um, post-conviction DNA testing is chapter 64 and the junk science writ yeah. was another one where there was a discussion from the dais that really spawned new legislation and, and, then, and amending it before they could even come to a ruling on that case and so that's right there are some yeah there are other constituents for that information besides just the folks in the courtroom and there's legislators there's journalists and all sorts of secondary and tertiary uses for it so I agree I think it's an excellent turn of events that they're finally doing this and the, and the Supreme Court's done it for years without really any problems so I don't think they'll have a problem either Finally, let's close out this episode of Reasonably Suspicious with our rapid-fire segment we're calling The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? Yes, I am. All right, let's do this. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals finally exonerated Fran and Dan Keller, who'd been falsely convicted of operating a satanic child sex ring out of an Oak Hill daycare. What's your takeaway from this case? Um, with this case, I think we've seen an expansion of the court's interpretation of the false evidence claim under the Due Process Clause. I mean, basically now I think you're going to see more and more testimony and expert testimony challenged on these grounds. Yeah, and it's ex an exciting day. So moving on, the San Antonio Express News featured an editorial recently saying new Texas legislation would end debtors' prisons. Is that correct? That's not remotely correct. What they're talking about is legislation that would allow judges to waive fines or grant community service for indigent defendants at their sentencing instead of making them wait until they default. But lots and lots of people are still going to be arrested for non-payment of traffic tickets. That's not going away. 
When mothers in Texas are arrested while their kids are at school or away from home, no one at the police department or the jail is responsible for making sure they have somewhere to go or are taken care of, the Dallas News reported this month. What ought to be happening in these cases? Well, I don't think I would limit it to these cases. I think in any time an adult is arrested, there should be a question as to whether they are responsible for a minor and that there should be some efforts to make sure that that minor is cared for. Prosecutors at the Travis County Attorney's Hot Check Division have less to do now that people don't use checks. They're using those lawyers to try to collect old debt from as far back as the 1980s. Is this a good idea? This is completely nuts. If your prosecutors don't have enough to do, then fire some prosecutors. Do the taxpayers a favor. A new study from the Austin-based group Grassroots Leadership found that black people in Travis County spend nearly twice as long in jail as white folks who are charged with the same crimes. Are you surprised? No. Just, just no, huh? Yeah, no. All right. <laughs> After years of tolerating false convictions based on unreliable field tests for narcotics, the Houston PD announced that they'll cease using them, but only because they fear that a newly available drug called fentanyl could poison officers using the test. Scott, is eliminating field tests the right thing to do? I don't think we have any idea yet. On its face, it seems like eliminating would be great because they've made all these errors. We've had false convictions. The problem is we don't know whether officers make errors at even greater rates. And if they do, then even more innocent people will be convicted. What I'm hoping is that they'll start tracking this information now that they've made this shift so that we'll at least know if there are more errors being made. All right, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. I'm Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. We'll see you next time, people. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. So really, the fighting Quakers, honestly. <laughs>